If you would take your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 10. Mark's Gospel, chapter number 10. We have been studying for the past few weeks now uh, this whole concept of true discipleship and what that really looks like. We began back in Mark chapter 8 in what is the main section of Mark's gospel where the practical lesson of the gospel of Mark is most clearly set forth. Jesus says in Mark 8:34, if anyone desires to follow me or to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up the cross, and come after me. And we've been exploring the many applications of that concept um, in the lives of believers for the past few weeks. Now, we've touched a variety of issues. We said in the beginning that true discipleship begins with a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, but that's not the end. We continue to explore and discover new areas of our life and where the Lordship of Jesus is made application of, what that means for us, what it really means, the powerful impact of that statement over our life. Peter, James, and John struggled within chapters 8, 8, 9, and 10 to understand all that it means to say that Jesus is Lord, and so it stands to reason that we would, without the nearness that those uh, disciples in the inner circle of inner circles enjoyed, would likewise struggle with understanding all that it means to say that Christ is Lord of our life. We talked about uh, true discipleship, understanding the power of prayer and fasting. An example of the young boy who had a demon cast out, and Jesus said this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. We talked about the role of servanthood for the disciple, how this kingdom ethic is so much different than that of the world. It is a countercultural way of approaching the world, where, as in the world, first is first. Jesus says in the kingdom, if you really want to be first of all, you must be servant of all and last of all. We talked about ridding ourselves of unnecessary divisiveness as true disciples of Jesus Christ and how relevant that message is in, in our day and age. Last Sunday, we dealt with the whole idea of, of struggling with sin. I rehearsed those to say that we've, we've been talking uh, somewhat in general. But now, winding down this section of teaching, beginning in chapter 10, if you've yet to have your sensibilities offended by the radical nature of Jesus' teaching, then buckle up tight. Because Jesus takes on, in the remainder of this section, money. He takes on religion. He takes on um, marriage and family issues. He takes on suffering. Brothers and sisters, where the rubber meets the road, those are the issues. And what Jesus has to say, again is a radically different message than what you're hearing from the world around you. In fact, I think in some ways we may be helped in hearing most clearly what Jesus says, given the contrast that our culture now provides for us in understanding the teaching of Jesus. These are challenging issues, and so I, I would like to exhort you to be careful to hear what I do say and not what I don't say and to hear carefully as we study God's Word together. Mark chapter 10, we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 12. If you would, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. What I'd like you to observe in this morning's message is how true discipleship changes marriage and family issues. 
In verse 1, the Bible says, He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as he usually did, he began teaching them once more. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Now in the house, the disciples questioned him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So the question that hangs over these 12 verses is this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce? That, that, is, that is the question. It is a controversial question in our day and age, but it was no less controversial in the days of Jesus. In fact, what may seem a somewhat obscure introduction to the text provides some insight into the degree to which this was a controversial issue in Jesus' day. Look at verse 1. The Bible says there, He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Now, geographically, Jesus is moving north to south. But he's moving a bit eastward as he travels. He's moving from Galilee, where most of his ministry has been concentrated, toward the south to the region of Judea, where he'll spend the last six months of his life and ministry before bearing our sins on the cross and being raised again the third day outside the city of Jerusalem. But on the way, the Bible says, Mark records that he travels uh, eastward across the Jordan. It's described here simply as across the Jordan in some of your translations as beyond the Jordan. The little term there for beyond the Jordan is the Greek term perin, but it can be understood in some context as a proper noun for the region of Perea. He's traveling from Galilee in the north to Judea in the south, but he travels a bit to the east and into the region of Perea. Let me tell you why that's important when we're talking about questions of marriage and divorce and potentially even remarriage. The regions of Galilee and Perea were governed by a man named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was a vile king after his father's image, Herod the Great. And he ruled over those two regions. He was the governor of those two particular areas, and governor is really not the appropriate title. He was the tetrarch of those two uh, provinces. Now, Herod Antipas is best known in the Gospels for his involvement in the life and execution of one John the Baptist. Now, the trouble with Herod Antipas is that he had a wife that was not his. In fact, he stole her away from his brother. And the problem with the ministry of John the Baptist is that he said, you have a wife that is not yours. Now, Galilee was home to Jesus, but Perea was home to John the Baptist. 
And as Jesus makes his way southward and a bit to the east into the region of Perea, the Pharisees provide him with an opportunity to ensnare himself in a very controversial issue that had great relevance in the region of Perea. They're really very crafty about what they do. They'll ask him a question to which they know the answer. And providing the answer will, one, ostracize him from the masses, and two, could compromise his life in the face of Herod Antipas. The last brother that preached that sermon in Perea lost his head over the matter. So this was a controversial issue in Jesus' day, even as it is in our own. Within religious circles, there was debate. What was permissible? In fact, later in our text, Jesus asked them what Moses commanded, and the response is Moses allowed or permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. They, they were not incorrect, they just weren't entirely correct. They were appealing to Deuteronomy 24 in the first few verses of that chapter where certain stipulations are made regarding divorce and remarriage. The Pharisees were inviting Jesus to provide his own interpretation of that particular text, interpretation that was being debated among the religious establishment in his day. There was one camp, the prevailing camp, that said you could divorce for virtually any reason whatsoever. In fact, really silly things like burning dinner qualified. You could put your wife away for such things. Some of you wives would be in big trouble. <laughs> Some of you husbands are in big trouble for laughing at that joke. But there was, there was someone who would advocate for a position much like that of our own culture. That if you just decide that you can't get along, and we'll just write up the paperwork, we'll do the deal, and for about 250 bucks, you can move on with the rest of your life. That was the position that some were advocating, and that was the predominant position in the world to which Jesus spoke in our particular passage. There was another passage that may, or another school of thought that made exceptions only for sexual immorality or issues related to sexual immorality, but it was a minority view in the days of Jesus. So he's being invited here into a political, cultural, and religious controversy. And Jesus does what he always does and speaks with remarkable wisdom. The question, again, that hangs over our text is this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? There are a series of answers provided here. In verse 3, Jesus responds the way he often does with a question. And he says, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted us to, to write divorce papers and to send her away. Again, the Pharisees are not completely wrong. They're just not completely right. There are biblical exceptions where divorce is allowed. Y'all tracking with me? I want you to hear very careful what I say over the next few minutes. Deuteronomy 24, we should probably read that verse together if you've not turned there. Just listen carefully. Here's what Deuteronomy 24.1 says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs from his house. Now the text continues and it talks about receiving her again. And there are other issues that, address, uh, that are addressed. But Deuteronomy 24.1 assumes the appropriateness 
of finding some incident of sexual immorality, and I do believe that's what Moses is referencing there, that divorce can be permissible under those circumstances. I have found myself through the years talking through that often with couples who were on the brink of divorce, wrestling with uh, issues of adultery or of uh, some kind of infidelity, whether it be uh, pornography or actual physical adultery. And, and there is no question that there is an exception made in the scripture where divorce can happen in the case of sexual immorality. But I would like to point out for you here that it is what I call the nuclear option. You understand what a nuclear option is? Like we've, we, when we are engaged as a nation in war, we always have the nuclear option. But we don't want to employ nuclear weapons because the fallout is so great. The consequences of utilizing that method are just incredible. Now, I, I want to I remind you as we talk about this exception that, that God spoke to the people of Israel through the prophet Hosea in a way that, that illustrates... The, the severity of, of the option of divorce and the grace that is called for when it comes to dealing one with the other. Do you remember Hosea? Hosea was married to a prostitute named Gomer, and she ran away. And, uh, and, and, and God said, you go get her back. You go, you go win her back. Your relationship is going to serve as an illustration of the kind of unending love that I have for my people. And the Bible says in Hosea 3, 1 and 2, that Hosea went and he bought her back from prostitution and he made her his own once more. He went and he paid the price. Now, from time to time, uh, sitting in circles with friends and other married couples, I'll hear someone say something to the effect of, well, if he or she ever did this, I would just be completely out the door. And I understand your sentiment and I have felt that way at uh, various times myself. If this ever happened, there's no way that I could ever move beyond that. But I sh I, and I know, listen, there's a biblical exception for that, and there may be circumstances under which you cannot move beyond that. But I want you to hear me when I say that it is the nuclear option. It is an option, but it is a nuclear option. And don't think for a minute that you're going to sidestep all of the consequences that come with utilizing the nuclear option, should that be your course of action. And I want to encourage you that if you find yourself in that situation, that the grace of God is sufficient for you, even in the darkness of that hour. Y'all with me? Amen. I, I'm, I'm just telling you, there's a lot at stake here. I can still remember like it was yesterday, the way the furniture was positioned, the temperature outside, the dust. I can still smell the fumes of that diesel after piling off of that school bus, the dust still in the air on that gravel road. I can still see that old ugly home interior decor on the walls. Y'all remember that? <laughs> w where I was standing, where I was when my parents announced to me their divorce. I'm just telling you, for, for husbands and wives who are on the brink of divorce, you're thinking of giving it up, and maybe you found the biblical exception for your case. There is far more at stake than child support and alimony payments. It is an option. In the case of sexual immorality and in other cases, Paul gives us an example in 1 Corinthians 7 and 8 of the abandonment of an unbeliever. 
an unbeliever that just will not live with you, or an unbeliever that just makes it unbearable to live with them. I'm thinking about cases of physical violence or abuse. They may not have physically abandoned you, but they have made it physically impossible for you to remain in that environment. The Bible makes exceptions for that. Now, what clouds that sometimes in the Bible Belt culture is that everyone says that they're a believer. So the, so the abusive spouse, the violator, will want to remove that option from you by claiming that they themselves are a believer. And what I'm saying to you is, if you are an abusive husband, I don't want to hear about your Christian faith. Frankly, I'm not buying it. It's bogus. If you love Jesus, you will love your wife. Because if there is anything that we stand to learn from the Lord Jesus Christ, it is how to love our bride. In fact, that's what's so critical about this issue. That's why this is such a critically important issue. Because Jesus has said... I will never leave you nor forsake you, which is why I say in the case of sexual immorality, it's an option, but it's the nuclear option because Jesus says in the face of our spiritual infidelity, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you run, no matter what God to which you bow, I will return to you. You'll come back to me. I will love you. I will be with you even to the end of the age. The reason it's so important that the church gets the issue of marriage and family right is that the world is watching us, and our children are watching us, and they're understanding the metaphors of marriage and family and fatherhood and husband and wife that God uses to describe himself, his church, and his relationship one with the other through the filter of our example. It's an option, but it's a nuclear option. Sexual immorality, or in the case that an unbeliever is just unbearable or will not live with you. Now, we would be off track if we didn't remind ourselves that what Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 7 is a situation where two unbelievers marry. Then one party is converted and so you have an unbeliever and a believer living together. Young people, mamas and daddies, do not be unequally yoked believer and unbeliever. Amen. Amen. In, in the rare event that you're able somehow to make it work, it will always be a disaster. What relationship has righteousness with unrighteousness? the same relationship the believer has with the unbeliever within the bonds of marriage. Now, do you remember what Paul said there? And it's the tricky thing about this is it takes in so many issues, and we'll pull in some rabbit trails here, but this needs to be addressed. He, he says you don't need to be bound together, believer with unbeliever, because you are bound by your affections. It, it, will, it will change your mind. Seldom will you pull someone else up. You'll almost always be yourself pulled down. And some of you young ladies are naive enough to believe that that knucklehead boyfriend is going to get it together somehow, some way, the day after you say, I do. And in all likelihood, there are exceptions, but in all likelihood, whatever he is today, he will be 20 years from now if it's not a whole lot worse than what it is in reality. Do, do not, mamas and daddies, the, the first thing that you want to know when she brings him home 
or when he brings her home, whatever the case would be, is whether they have a hot, burning love for Jesus Christ in their heart and you want to examine the ways that they're working that out in their personal lives. Is divorce lawful? The answer has to be yes, but, but there are caveats here. The, the Pharisees say, Moses, let us do it. And then Jesus takes up in verse 3. He told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Jesus is describing here the ideal. This is the way it is supposed to be. This is the way marriage is intended to function. This is marriage as God instituted marriage, and God did institute marriage. That's what you've read of in verses 7 and 8. That's a direct quotation from Genesis chapter 2 and the institution of marriage where God gives us the gift of marriage. The biblical pattern for marriage is one man and one woman for all of life. Now, there's a spiritual element to this. Here, two distinct fleshes, if you will, are made to be one. Two people are made to be one spiritually. There's a connection that exists there. It is a mysterious thing that happens. Pulling those two fleshes apart again inevitably will do damage to the two fleshes freshly pulled apart. Jesus says God has made them male and female and ordained that they would be put together within the bonds of marriage so that two fleshes become one. In fact, he says a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Some of you young husbands need to leave your mother and father. You are joined to your wife. Some of you mothers need to let him go. He is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. It really is a mysterious thing, isn't it? There is something about the coming together of a husband and wife that's spiritual. There's a real bond that's established there, which is what makes giving yourself away outside the bonds of marriage such a consequential sin. Not just for you, but for the spouse that you'll eventually take in life. You'll have given of yourself before God's ever revealed your spouse if you follow after the pattern of this world. Here Jesus says that marriage as God defined it is one man and one woman for all of life forever and ever and amen. What God has put together, let no man separate. Now, let me take a moment and just address this issue. I want you to know, for those of you, and there are many of you this morning in our congregation who are divorced, who have been through divorce, and I want you to hear the pastor say that divorce is not the cardinal sin, that you are loved by this church and you are loved by God. 
And, and I, I want to always speak on marriage and family issues with equal parts conviction and kindness. Because, folks, we have to say what the Bible says about marriage and family. The world is listening earnestly. They're expecting an answer from the church. And we have so clouded our position and we have so misrepresented our conviction by our actions. The world is watching and waiting for clarity on the issues of marriage and family. Much like Jesus' day, there are people who are asking, is it lawful to divorce? One of the things that I found to be so crazy about the extent to which the church has gotten itself in such a tizzy over Supreme Court decisions over marriage in recent years is that we're 40 years late to the party. This business was settled in the 70s with no-fault divorce, and there was virtually nothing said from the church. Historically, I can't look back and find a single person who was stepping forward as vocal opposition to the idea or the concept of no-fault divorce. And you wonder why we have generations now who have twisted and warped understandings of what it means to be a husband and a wife. I just, I just want you to hear me say that there's real effort on my part to speak compassionately about these issues. And I realize that there are two camps when it comes to divorce. There are the violators and there are the victims. And if you have been touched by divorce, I want you to know that a part of what compels me to speak at times as forcefully as I do about this issue is because I know the pain that you have been touched by. And if we can save just one family from going that way, let's join forces together and do it. Amen. There are exceptions, but the ideal is as Jesus has explained it here. Now, the Bible says in verse 10 that in the house, the disciples questioned him again about this matter. In fact, if you're reading Matthew's gospel, they said, if this is the way it is, it's better just not get married at all. Well, if that's your view of marriage, it's not what it ought to be in the first place. But here in Mark's gospel, Jesus answers them, and here's what he says. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, I'm as conservative as the day is long. I don't think that's in question. But I want you to be careful that as you read literally what Mark says here in verse 12, what Jesus says, that you're hearing it in its context and holding it in tension with other New Testament texts. Read again. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. I do not believe, in fact, I'm overly confident, that what Jesus is teaching here prohibits a person who divorces from ever marrying again. I believe that based not only what Jesus says here in this passage in its context, but what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse number 8, where Paul says in the case of the unmarried and the widowed, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, there are three categories of people in 1 Corinthians 7 and 8. Jesus, uh, Paul is talking there about sexual ethics. In fact, he is providing commentary on what Jesus says in Matthew and in Mark regarding marriage. The three categories of people are the virgins. Those are the people who have never been married. There are the widows. Those are people who have been married and their spouse is deceased. And there are the unmarried. There's just one category of people left to be defined. Those are people who have been married and now they are divorced. 
And in the case of each of those three groups, Paul says, I wish you'd all stay single and devote all of your time to serving Jesus. But if you don't have what I call the gift of singleness, it is better in any of those cases to marry than it is to burn with passion. So if you come to me as pastor and you say, you know, I had a marriage based on uh, a divorce, a marriage that ended in divorce based on uh, biblically suitable exceptions, and we're able to talk through that, an appropriate time of healing has uh, been gone through, I'm going to be very comfortable in officiating your wedding and putting my hand on that wedding and saying, God, God bless this marriage. What Jesus is describing here in Mark 10 and 12 is something different. Remember the religious debate in Jesus' day where there's one camp, the big camp, and they say for all these reasons you can just get divorced? One of those reasons, by the way, was if you find one fairer than her. I'm quoting rabbinical literature from the Old Testament. If you find one from the Old Testament time, not from the Old Testament, get that right. If you find one fairer than her. Well, a lot of us brothers would be in bad trouble if that was the case for her, wouldn't we? Jesus is saying here, you can't just go get divorced and then remarry arbitrarily. Now, think about this in real life terms, and you've witnessed this before. You've experienced this. Some old boy decides that he has some affection for, begins to be drawn to a coworker or someone that he knows, a friend, and the two of them begin to talk, and they discover that they share those affections, and they decide that they want their future to be spent together. But they decide that because of what the Bible says in the Ten Commandments about adultery, that what they need to do is to go home and divorce their spouses before they pursue this relationship. So he goes home or she goes home and their spouse is struck, stunned, brokenhearted. And the two adulterers march off into the sunset feeling as though they've done something noble because they broke the news to their former spouse before they committed the physical act of adultery. That's, that's, what's, that's what's happening here. I've counseled this case over and over and over again. He comes in and he says, she, she says, she just doesn't love me anymore. There's nobody else. She just doesn't love me anymore. Her phone has mysteriously disappeared and she doesn't come home at night, but she just doesn't love me anymore and there's no one else. And the very moment the ink dries, they're at the justice of peace, the new couple are, sealing the deal on this relationship that miraculously began the moment the ink dried on the divorce papers. What Jesus is saying to the disciples here and what I'm saying to you is that you cannot use the legal termination of marriage as a cop-out for your sin before a holy God. Under those circumstances, you can file your paperwork. It makes no difference in the eyes of God. It's a sin. It's a sin. It's a sin. The legal termination of marriage cannot be used as a cover for adultery. Now, there are a number of marriage and family issues that might be taken in and addressed here. And maybe we've touched some very delicate places in your heart this morning. I want to stop sort of with the preaching part for a minute and uh, provide you with some opportunity for some help and some assistance. Frank Peavy, who is our associate pastor here, um, has been working with marriage mentoring and helping married couples here for a long time. If, you're, if you've been at Longview Point, you know Frank. 
we're going to be beginning some new marriage mentoring opportunities, which is an opportunity for you to connect with another couple to walk through some marriage and family issues. There is in your bulletin this morning this little postcard-sized card. Now, if you would, everybody get it out, and everybody write something. If you don't write anything more than, how you doing, Brother Way, just write something on the card. Whether you're saying, I need to be a part of this or not, you, you know someone who does need to be a part of this or is in a situation within their family that requires prayer. So maybe you're using this as a prayer request card, but we're all filling this out. Now, in a moment, we're going to have an invitation and you're going to have an opportunity to respond. Husbands, if she was not talking to you when you got here this morning, I would, I would not suggest that you take this opportunity to twist her arm into some marriage mentoring opportunity, nor would I encourage you to drag her down. We don't need Hernando PD involved in the invitation today. So, so don't use this, because I know what you'll do. You get in trouble, then you use all what Brother Wade said in your favor. I know how you do me. So do right this morning. And may, maybe you're next to one another and, there's, and there has been discord and, and you just don't know how to move forward and the discord's been there for a long time and you don't know if this morning is the proper time to step up and say this is us or even to respond in an invitation for prayer, for further counseling. If you could just do the subtle look at one another and give the nod or the no and then spouse, if you could honor the nod or the no, there could be a lot of nods and no's out there this morning but make sure that you're on the same page there you're not going to drag him and you're not going to drag her kicking and screaming to a better marriage i can promise you that but these these are real issues these are real issues there isn't an individual in this room that is not somehow touched by the issues raised in mark chapter 10 and I'm hopeful that you'll examine yourselves, that you'll write yourself with God, that you'll work through and pray through these issues. The altar this morning should be filled with people who are pleading that God would better their marriage through the work of his Holy Spirit. People bowed where they are. I was thinking about this morning's message, and I know we always talk in terms of whatever the sin or the issue addressed is. And I know that if you're asked about what this morning's sermon was about, you'll say it was about marriage and divorce. But, but more than anything, I want for it to be about the kind of marriage that you can have in Jesus. The kind of marriage that you can have in Jesus. All of us are sinful people. There are people who are born with just a natural, pleasant disposition, and they can be rather easy to live with. Most of us were not born that way. You put two people who are sinful people in the same house, and there will be issues. I, I can remember what a low view of marriage I had before being married, certainly before being converted. My goal was really to never get married at all and just sort of be a bachelor well into adulthood and all kinds of things attached to that. And I, I can even remember in the weeks leading up to our saying our I do's, the fear, the real fear that I had because I'd seen so many marriages end in divorce. Dozens of marriages even within my almost immediate family. I'm talking about a lot of divorces. And I, and I, it just didn't seem like divorce was escapable. That's the impression that you can get from the culture. 
And, I, and I'm just telling you that Miss Brandy and I, we're not perfect. We have what I call our marriage moments. We really don't fight except about the TV and the thermostat. But we have our marriage moments. When we snip at one another, when we're not as patient as we should be, we don't see eye to eye on how things are done. She didn't, she didn't always buy the right things at the grocery store. She's in the 1030 service, by the way. <laughs> but, I, but I'm telling you, the, the two of us, in spite of all the family baggage that we brought to the table, God has been faithful through the years to give us with each passing year a better marriage than we had the year before. I wouldn't take anything in the world for it. I remember, I'm out of time, but I, I, this might be helpful to you. I, I remember I was, I was doing construction work and I was on the job and always listened to Focus on the Family while I ate lunch. It came on at noon and James Dobson came on. James Dobson knows more about family than everybody except Jesus, you know? And, and I was so scared and afraid that I would compromise my ability to serve in ministry by getting married because it would inevitably lead to divorce. And here's what he said, and it encouraged me so. This is strange, but it's true. His wife's name is Shirley, and he said, some days I don't like Shirley, and some days Shirley don't like me. And I said, well, praise God, we can make it. <laughs> you know? You, you get this idea from Lifetime movies of what it's supposed to look like, and it ain't ever been that way, and it never will be. But I'm telling you, in Jesus... It, it can be the most remarkable blessing, an environment for raising children that love Jesus. I'm, I just want you to hear me when I say that in Christ, you can have more than what the culture would suggest when it comes to marriage and family. Something radically different than what is bemoaned in the world around us. But you must come to Christ. And you must lay your sins, your pet sins, your small sins, and your big sins at the foot of the cross. Bring them to Jesus and say, God, forgive me of my sin. Help me to walk in the Spirit. Make of us a godly home that embodies the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. May the, may the world see the gospel in us.